God, I just do agree with what we just prayed for Steve a few minutes ago. And I want to pray for all of us in this room as we all came in with various problems and concerns and things going on. I just ask in Jesus' name that you would help us today have a perspective on what you want us to really be focusing on this morning. And I pray that you would always speak through me now, that people would hear from your word, and they would hear not from a person, but hear from the Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I did something weird this last week. I encouraged my wife to start school. So we're a homeschooled family, so we get to start whenever we want to. And I said, hey, let's start early. And she said, really? And I was like, yes, this is a good idea. Because here's the deal. In Texas, in July, I've experienced this every July, it is really hot. It is really hot. It is miserable hot. I tell my kids, you want to go outside? And they're like, no. I tell my kids, hey, do you, you really want to go outside? And they're like, I'd rather not, Dad. And they just sit in the den and look at me saying, I just want to stay cool. And, and so I said, well, let's start school early. And if we start school early, then maybe we'll take off in October when it's nice outside. So we are trying this. We'll see how it goes. The first week was a little rough. Uh, everyone was a little rusty. Everyone was a little out of sync. And so I had to remind everyone Monday and Tuesday of the four rules that make school go smoothly in our home. I have to remind our kids of this because if they get out of habit, this really messes up our school experience. The first rule is mama is in charge. I am the principal, but I am at work. And so when they're doing school, mama is in charge. If she wants you to start with math, you start with math. You don't go on your own direction. Mama is in charge. The second rule is mama is fair. It is shocking to me how often mama gets accused of being unfair. I think it's like five or six times every hour. And I'm like, let's just start with mama is always fair. I get accused of this too sometimes, but mama gets it so much. I'm like, trust me, mama is fair. The third one is mama is actually kind. She loves you. She wants to help you. Mama is kind and mama is fair, so stop yelling that mama's not being fair or kind to you. She is. The fourth rule that makes school go well in our home is the child does not always have to understand. We sometimes do explain to our children why mama's being kind and why mama's being fair or why mama's telling you to do the thing in a certain way. But we have to say that, it, gosh, it is, gets tiring to explain that every time. So as just a general rule, the child does not always have the right to understand. Well, the reason I wanted to share that with you today is the topic I want to talk about will oftentimes cause us to believe either that God is not in charge, or if he is in charge, that he's certainly not kind, or that if he is acting in this way, he's certainly not fair or just, and it is difficult for us to understand. Thankfully, Jesus talked a lot about this topic, and we're going to start off today in Luke 16 with a story that he tells, starting in verse 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. Now, I just want you to notice that Jesus is not saying this is all rich men. This is a certain kind of rich man. This is a certain kind of rich man that loves to dress to the nines. He loves to dress in the most expensive clothes possible and loves focusing on himself. It's a self-focused rich man. Verse 20, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. And not only that, the dogs also were coming and licking his sores. 
That's quite a contrast. Lazarus is not doing well here. He is sick. He's got sores all over his body. He's hungry. He's starving. He has no roof over his head. He's at the gate. He is not doing well. And at this point of the story, who would you rather be? Let's continue on. Verse 22. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he raised his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. Now notice that for both men, they both die, but life does not end at the moment they die. Angels escort Lazarus to Abraham's side, some place where Abraham was, a place of comfort, a place of embrace, a good place. It's a wonderful place. The rich man, on the other hand, he opens his eyes and is shocked to find he is somewhere far worse. He's not in Abraham's arms. There is no comfort. In fact, it is a place of conscious torment. It's a terrible place. Now, Hades is a Greek word and seems to be equivalent to the Hebrew Sheol in the Old Testament. And Sheol was just a broad term that meant the place of the dead. So both of these men are in Hades, the place of the dead, but they're experiencing something very different in this place. Let's read on. Verse 24. And he, the rich man, cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. The rich man is in terrible conscious torment, and it doesn't let up, and he's, he's begging for something to ease the suffering. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set, so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able nor will any people cross over from there to us. So Jesus tells us through the story that Hades is divided into two compartments. There's a place where the righteous go, called Abraham's side, this wonderful place, a place of comfort. And there's a place where the unrighteous, the wicked go, that is a terrible place of torment. We learn at least four things from this story. Everyone lives beyond the grave. Both of them continue on. The righteous experience something really wonderful. The wicked experience continuous torment. And after death, there are no second chances. There is an impenetrable barrier that has been set up between these places that once you die and you are placed in one place, you don't get to cross over. There is no second chances. I think it's helpful to think of Hades or Sheol as kind of like a holding place until the final judgment happens. Kind of like when you get arrested and you're awaiting arraignment, you're waiting for that trial. Hades is that waiting place. And, and it's naturally to ask, does a follower of Jesus go to Hades at this time? Does he go to this place called Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, you often hear it called? Well, there's an interesting verse in Ephesians 4, 8, which says this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I don't know for sure this is true, 
But it sure seems to be that this is talking about the ascension when Jesus had died and he rose again with the keys to Hades in his hands. And when he got those keys, it seems like he unlocked the place where all these righteous had been waiting for Jesus to come. It was a place of comfort. It was a wonderful place, but it was not heaven yet. And he unlocked that place and he invited Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the righteous that had lived before him and said, come with me. And he took them to heaven. So after the cross, none of us who are followers of Jesus will ever experience Hades. And he talks about this this place being a a really wonderful, wonderful place that's going to last for a long time. In fact, the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him will not perish but have eternal life. I love this picture that Gary taught me many years ago. And you can imagine this rope as being a timeline. And imagine every inch of this rope being like 100 years. So my lifetime, because I probably, if I lived to 100, I'll be really blessed. It, you know, if I make it to 100, imagine a lifetime of a human is 100 years. And we're going to say this inch on this part of the rope, this little black piece of tape is the 100 years that I live on earth. And then eternal life happens for the rest of eternity. So this next inch is my first hundred years of experiencing heaven, where I'm just trying all the foods up there. I'm just saying a hundred years just checking out all the most amazing foods that God has ever dreamed up. Okay, I'm gonna spend the next hundred years checking out this place that God has built for me. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and it's gonna be killer awesome. And then I spend the next hundred years checking out all the planets. And I just go hundred years, adventure and wonderful and amazing. And better than the last. And it goes on and on and on and on. And that is what we have to look forward to if we are followers of Christ. But for people who have rejected Jesus, the story is very different. See, they go to Hades and their eyes wake up and they're in torment. And they see this chasm and they can't get out. And this is just a pre-judgment until we see the final judgment, which we read about in Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. It's called the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. See, I find this scene fascinating and terrifying at the same time. It's amazing to think every time that someone has cheated someone, it's been written down. God has a record of it. Every time someone has treated someone unjustly, it's been written down. And record every time somebody has lied to someone, it's been written down. Every time somebody has done anything that violates God's law, he has written it down. The time, the place, the person. And there's a record of it in heaven. And the one sitting on the great white throne is Jesus himself. Jesus Christ will be the judge 
who will adjudicate every person who has rejected his righteousness and says, you want to stand on your own righteousness. So let's see how you measure up. Let's see how this goes. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're a follower of Jesus, your name has been written in the book of life, and you will never experience this scene for yourself. But if you have rejected Jesus, if you rejected God, then this is what the Bible says is in store for you someday. And I've heard many people attack God's fairness, saying, well, it's not fair that God would send someone to hell. It's not fair that someone be sent to hell for simply rejecting Jesus. And I want to just clarify and make sure everyone understands. No one is in hell because they rejected Jesus alone. It is the stack of books of all the things. But maybe those books only record the really bad sins, like murdering someone, right? I mean, they're not really like the commonplace sins, right? Well, Jesus talks about this a lot. Let's see what he says in Matthew 5. Verse 21 and 22. Just one example of the kinds of sins that Jesus says are bad enough to send you to hell. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That is shocking to me. I cannot tell you how often it is I turn on the TV and I hear someone call someone else an idiot or a fool. I cannot tell you how often it is that I hear language like this. And it's not just this. There's so many sins that I find commonplace because I am a human. And this is one of these moments where God's thoughts are higher than man's thoughts and God's ways are higher than man's ways. And God's standard of holiness is massively higher than my standard of holiness. God has an incredible intolerance for sin. And someday his wrath will purify his creation from all sin that has wrecked it. Matthew 13, 40 to 43, we don't have time to go into right now, but it's a picture of God's wrath and the process of purification that will happen as God eradicates wickedness from the earth. Now, I just want to be clear here. Jesus deeply loves sinners. And he has demonstrated that over and over again. He deeply loves sinners, but he has a heavy intolerance. And his holiness and his justice is offended deeply by the wickedness and sin of mankind. And I could, I could try to convince you that humankind is wicked. I could try to convince you, but I don't think any of us need that convincing. I don't think it takes very long. I, I feel like every week I get flooded with stories of injustice and wickedness and evil in our world. So I think we're all deeply aware of that. And so the, 
I put in your notes, by the way, if you got the notes this morning, just a list of some of the verses uh, that you could do on your own uh, as Jesus talks much about this. But I want to answer the question, why would I talk about such a bummer topic this morning? Like, why not talk about something happier? I go back to the heaven topic. You know, why talk about this? And I want to answer it partly is because Jesus talked about it so much. I mean, Jesus talked about this more than he talked about heaven. So he wanted us to understand the reality of hell. And I think sometimes I, there's a famous bike race in the area called the Hotter Than Hell Bike Race. And I, I you know, heard it, thought that's a catchy title. But it's only catchy if you don't really think about what hell is. Because hell should be a thing that stops us in our tracks and says, wow, that is a heavy thing. And it is thrown around way too flippantly in our society. So I started with some rules for our family of how to make school go well. And I want to switch gears just for a minute and talk about how these apply to Jesus and his view of hell. First of all, I just want us all to understand Jesus is really the one in charge. Mama's in charge, but Jesus is the one in charge. He is the one who will sit on the throne. And it really doesn't matter what attorney we get or what advocate we have. Jesus is the one who is going to adjudicate all of this. Whatever he says goes. Secondly, Jesus is perfectly fair. C.S. Lewis said it so well. There's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And those who seek, find. And those who knock, it is opened. As I've gotten older, one of the things that I have been surprised by is the lengths to which God will go to reveal himself to a true seeker. You know, recently I got to hear a little bit of Nick's story. So Nick is one of our overseas workers who traveled to Asia recently. We prayed for him down here. You know, his story is shockingly amazing. He grew up in a family, no Christians around, everyone's Muslim. He is in a village one day, and the Taliban come in, and there's widespread killing. He thinks he's going to die. He should have died. God supernaturally spares his life. And then soon after that, God appears in a dream to him. Jesus appears in a dream and says, I'm the one you're looking for. I mean, that is a God who is willing to go to deep lengths to reach someone who is a seeker. I remember Gary recently telling me about a trip he went to a closed country, a group of pastors there. And he said, you know, raise your hand if Jesus has appeared to you in a dream. He said over half the room raised their hand. That's amazing. God's, you know, that's never happened to me because I live in a country where there's Christians around me. But if there is a seeker somewhere on earth, Jesus will move heaven. In fact, he took Philip and said, hey, Philip, I want you to take a, a detour here to go talk to this Ethiopian eunuch and tell him something. And he, he led that Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord, baptized him, and God teleported him somewhere else. He said, okay, I got another place you got to be. Let's go. Or remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus who was his very last breath. He says, remember me, Lord. All he had to do was just with his mouth speak, Jesus, your Lord. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or Paul on the road to Damascus, a murderer, someone who had killed Christians. But God saw inside his heart and said, 
this man is useful to me. And on the road to Damascus, he, Jesus appeared directly to him, and that encounter changed the Western world. See, we can't force people to choose Jesus. We can't manipulate them into the kingdom. Ultimately, everyone must choose for ourselves. While there are not multiple ways to be forgiven of our sins, Luke eleven nine says that whoever seeks God will find him. Jesus is also overwhelmingly kind. My wife and I are kind and loving, but, but Jesus is overwhelmingly kind. He knew that it was either him or us who would have to face the penalty of our sins. And he knew about the great white throne judgment. And I think when he's in the garden and he's thinking, do I go through with this? He's thinking, is Jonathan able to stand before that judgment? Because Jesus knows what's in Jonathan's books. And he knows what's in each of your books. And, and he's like, I know that they can't, they can't handle, they may not understand, they may not realize the wrath of God, but they can't handle the judgment that is coming. And so Jesus said it was his joy to go to the cross. It was his joy to do that for us, to sacrifice himself for us. It was the only way that you and I would ever escape hell. And as I think about his kindness, I think about how overwhelmingly kind that he has not come back yet. Can you imagine every single day there are more names being written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Every day there's another name that does not have to experience that great white throne judgment. Every day there's another name. And I think that is just God's kindness that he has delayed long enough for as many as who possibly will come to him to come. So as we close today, I just want to talk about what the reality of hell should do for us. What, what should thinking about hell for a few minutes, it's not pleasant, it's not fun. I don't expect us to talk about this at lunch for the next three weeks. Um, but what should this do for us? Well, the first thing I just want to say, it should push us to choose heaven. I mean, heaven is a much better choice than hell. And I had someone in my office this week who, who literally verbalized to me, you know, I'm not really doing that well with Jesus right now. And if I were to die today, I'm not sure where I would go. And in my head, I was thinking, be sure this is not one to get wrong. This is one you want to make sure you get right. You want to make sure that you have chosen heaven. This is not like I want a bacon cheeseburger or just a cheeseburger. This is not that kind of choice. This is a big-time eternal choice. And so don't leave it to be a toss-up or a flip of the coin. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and you will get your name added to the book of life so we never have to go through that other stack of books. So don't leave today without making sure you've done that. And if you've done that and never taken the next step of getting baptized, we're going to having a baptism service here in a couple weeks. We'd love to include you because that's a great New Testament way of saying yes to the Lord is after accepting him as your Lord and Savior, getting baptized. So the first thing that the reality of hell should do for us is choose heaven, of course. The second thing it should do is to motivate us to encourage others to choose heaven. 
See, we can't force people to choose heaven, but we can certainly go fishing. You know, Jesus said that he was going to turn Peter into a fisher of men. And there is a certain way about fishing for men that is very fun and very useful. In my life group right now, we're going through uh, a series called Blessed. We're talking about praying for our neighbors. Because the very first step to sharing about Jesus with people is you pray. And so we have this little app that's been reminding us to pray by name for our neighbors. And I've been praying for my neighbors. And I don't have time to go through all the stories that have happened since I started praying. But I want to tell you, I've had more neighbors in my house and talk to me about spiritual things in the last three months than in the past 10 years. It has been amazing. It's amazing what happens when you, when you start like, like saying, Lord, I'm going to pray for my neighbors every day because I care about them not going to hell. I care about them knowing you. I care about them deeply, and I'm caring about them by name. It's part of loving them. And, and we're also going to talk as a small group this Thursday. We're going to talk about what was life like for each of us before Christ, how do we met Christ, and what's life like after Christ. We're going to try and do it in about five minutes each and just go around and have your personal story. Because what's great about fishing is there is— no one who's really going to object to your personal story. I worked in the corporate world for many years, and people object to preachiness. They object to you moralizing. They object to a lot of that. But very few people objected to me offering to pray for my coworkers. People rarely objected to me talking about my personal story, things that personally happened to me, because my story is my story. My story is authentic to me. And that came off very well to my coworkers. In fact, the day I left my, my last company 10 years ago, my agnostic boss sent an email to the entire group and said, you know, now we have a direct line to God because Jonathan's going to work for the church. And I thought, what a funny thing. But, you know, it's just an interesting thing that they all knew who I was. They all knew who Jesus was. What they did with that was their decision, but they knew. They absolutely knew. You know, God cares about the people on my street, and he desperately wants them to turn to him. My hope is over the next few months, there's going to be more opportunities on my street, more opportunities that people I will connect with and people that you will connect with, and we will see many names written in the Lamb's Book of Life over the next couple months. Philippians 3, 18 and 19 says this, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even as I weep that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds on earthly things. Notice Paul doesn't say everyone will end up in heaven. Instead, he says the enemies of the cross of Christ will end in destruction. And he does this with tears in his eyes. So one of the things I think the reality of hell should do for us as we encourage others to choose heaven, as we pray for others to choose heaven, is it should have us care deeply about those who maybe are close to heaven and haven't decided yet. Like, Lord, would you help them get there today? And so my my question for you is, who are you praying for? Who are you encouraging? Who around you does not know your story? If you don't have a story yet, I encourage you, man, this week, as an action step, I want to write out my five-minute story. So when someone asks, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to tell people why I'm not afraid because I have Jesus on my side. The final thing that the reality of hell should do for us 
is that it should help us be amazed at God's amazing love for us personally. I invite Aaron to come up here as I talk about this because God's amazing love for you and for me, what it did is he literally said, I love you so much, I want to keep you out of hell over my dead body. And that's what he said to us. And I don't know what problem we're wrestling with. My, my friend Steve, we prayed for him earlier. He is wrestling with some big problems. I have some people that I am praying with in my life group wrestling with big problems. One of my friends in my life group right now is, is in surgery right now with a life-threatening thing. We've been praying for her this morning. That's a big problem. But you know what's a bigger problem? Going to hell is the biggest problem any person will ever have. And Jesus has solved that for you. Jesus has said, I will take your biggest problem and I will handle it. And you can bank on that. That is amazing love. That is Kim saying, I, I've handled your big problems and I will handle the rest of the problems too. I might not explain it each step of the way, but I want you to know that I see you as my child and you are perfectly loved. And I'm giving you the most amazing gift of love in salvation that you will ever experience. You will never go and feel God's judgment in a personal way because I have taken that for you and I've suffered in your place. So we're gonna sing this song together. I invite you to, to stand and just meditate on that for a couple minutes. I'll close in prayer in just a minute. It says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, we thank you for the promise that all those who seek you will find you. In my mind right now, I have certain names popping up of people that are far from you. And I'm praying right now that you would use me or use someone else to bring them close to you. I'm praying for their sake 
that they would say yes to Jesus and say yes to him. The third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time that they would say yes before it's too late. That they would not have to ever experience the wrath of God like I will never have to. We thank you so much for this gift that you've given us. You've not only saved us from hell, but you've given us eternal life and how eternity we will get to spend with you. We are not worthy, but we are so thankful today. In Jesus' name.